We are live. Welcome to Carl's Vibe. And we are going to be talking today to Jeremy Medor, who is a grassroots gumshoe crash site investigator. And uh, we are live right now. We might as well bring everybody on screen. Jeremy, how are you doing today, my friend? Doing pretty good. And uh, I've got Andrew Hall as well. He is the host of uh, his own show. Uh, is it Dead Hand Radio? Yes, is that- it is. Welcome, welcome, Andrew. Thank now, you. I am super me. stoked for this show today because we're going to be talking about a whole host of different topics from UFO crash site investigations that Jeremy has done over the last decade, including an encounter that he had as a, as a young man up in the mountains and a whole host of different paranormal things, also including uh, Bigfoot-type encounters and evidence in the desert regions that they have coined the phrase and calling them the Sand Yeti. And we're going to get into all of that, the connections with the paranormal and how it may all fit together in some strange paranormal way uh, and how that's all being backed up with evidence and some really good research that Jeremy's been doing. So, Jeremy, why don't you introduce yourself and a little bit what you and your team are doing now and what you've kind of done mm-hmm. on your own. We can go as long as you want and dig into all of this and cover all the topics. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a great show. And if you guys leave comments over in the side, uh, we'll feature you guys on screen as well and take your comments and questions as we go along. So, Jeremy, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your research and what you what you guys are up to? Yeah, so uh, like Carl was saying, my name is Jeremy Metter. I am from Las Vegas, Nevada. I am 31 years old. I uh, belong to a group based out of Vegas called the Bigfoot Pad Paranormal. Um, I started off researching uh, ghostly activities and taking UFO reports in the early 2000s out here by Vegas. Um, but nowadays, uh, we do ghost hunting. We'll do look for like legends, mysteries. We'll go even go treasure hunting. Um, outside of the group, I do lots of UFO reports, like I said earlier. I'm most famously known for doing something called the Ely, Nevada UFO crashes, from ranging from the 1950s to the 1970s. Um, the other really popular thing that we're doing right now as part of my group is there's something called the Sand Yeti, the Nevada Sand Yeti. Um, in short, we're going to get into it more in detail here in a minute. But it's basically a Bigfoot or Bigfoot-like creatures that are reported in the desert regions of Arizona and Nevada. In Arizona and Nevada, you say? Mm-hmm. See, that's yes. something that people don't really expect when you start talking about Bigfoot Sasquatch encounters. But honestly, like uh, locations like Skinwalker Ranch and when you really dig into the evidence and everything surrounding the ancient history of this area from Nevada to Southern Utah, Arizona, all the way up Mm -hmm. to the Uintah Basin, into the Wasatch Mountains and around, there is a ton of different stuff like that, that people just kind of put into their own little box, it seems. And they, Mm -hmm. they say, oh, well, it's this or it's that. And they call it a bunch of different names. But I wonder if there's some kind of a strange connection to that. Uh, And and I would love to dig into that, the uh, the desert sand yeti, because people always think that these are giant wood apes that go up in the woods. They have to be mm-hmm. in the trees. They have to have large food sources and different things like that. They, they yeah. can't fathom that there could be any evidence for large hominid type creatures or 
uh, paranormal type entities possibly living out in the desert or the desert mountains. And uh, yeah. I think the, the cave environments, like the underground cave type environments of the desert region around here actually uh, could be a, a host a whole lot of different stuff that we, we don't fathom. Uh, and, and also underground military installations, UFO crash sites. And I mean, it covers the whole spectrum. Once you live in this area, it kind of blows your mind when you take the lid off of it. So uh, yeah, Andrew and Jeremy, you guys have done an entire show over on Andrew's, uh, Andrew's channel before and you just got done speaking over at MUFON uh, yeah. and, and presenting there. So I would like to jump back, first of all, Jeremy, and talk to you a little bit about how you got started in all of this research and what spurred that as a, as a young boy. Yes, well, the, my, what got me started in ufology in general was kind of kind of a weird story here. I was actually a Boy Scout or a Cub Scout in this instance back in 1998. I was on a trip called the Mom and Me Weekend, is what they called it. And um, what the what what the whole point of the trip was was you're supposed to get a Cub Scout coming up there with their mom, and they were supposed to do different activities like hiking or uh, shooting, archery, things like that. But you're supposed to be spending time with your mom. Well, at the time I was like eight or nine years old. We were up at Mount Potosi, which is uh, over by Blue Diamond, Nevada. It's about at that point in time. Southwest of Las Vegas. Yes. It's outside oh, okay. of Vegas. So it's actually not. So Area 51, just for people that aren't familiar with the state, Area 51 and that whole, well, pretty much covers underground almost the entire state, it feels like. When you're driving around, there's weird conduits and pipes and strange anomalies that make you wonder if they've got tunnels and installations underground in that entire state of Nevada and even under part of Utah. But it, you're saying this is southwest of Las Vegas. Most stuff happens yeah. to the north of Las Vegas, where Area 51 is, all the way up to Rachel and around that region. But this is to the southwest in the mountain region. So that's good to know. Yeah. Well, there's a whole other story about underground tunnels in the area. I'll get into that in a minute. Okay. But uh, yeah, so uh, I was on this, this Cub Scout trip. And uh, as part of the trip, we were supposed to take a night hike. And you're supposed to go down this big, long trail. And about a mile or two down the road, there's almost like an outside planetarium, like a sitting area. And uh, we were going to go look up at the stars and go look at planets and things like that. So there is, I know for a fact, there was 20 or 25 parents and 20 or 25 kids. Because I remember my mom was one of the people that was hosting this event. So uh, everyone was kind of walking in a big group with one of the other leaders, like walking in front of everyone. And a little ways back was me, my mom, and another parent and her kid. And what was weird was it was one of those nights where it was brightly lit outside where it wasn't super dark. Even once you had your flashlight up for a while, you could actually like your eyes would adjust. Um, so we were going down this trail and all of a sudden my mom was the first one that pointed this out. There was an object. It looked like, um, like an egg was the only way I could explain it, but it had a point coming out to the side. And I remembered the first thing my mom pointed out was there was this point on this object and we thought it was the end of a boat is what I compared it to. And it was sticking out of the trees. Uh, so we stopped and we were looking at this object. It looked like a, like a silver looking egg on 
three to four stilts with the point coming off to the side. There was no windows. Uh, there was no openings at all on this thing, but it was just sitting there. And I remembered my mom stopping and talking to this other parent, and they were wondering what it was because for those of you who aren't familiar with the area, uh, this specific mountain is at that point in time was a Boy Scout and Cub Scout camp. There was no reason at all for anyone to be going up there that wasn't a Boy Scout because this was private, a private area. Nowadays, they're building houses up there. But at that point in time, if you weren't a Boy Scout or a Cub Scout, you weren't allowed to go up there because they had like the gates and things. Uh, so I know for a fact that we were the only ones on this mountain. Uh, so I don't have no idea what this object was. Hmm. So we sat there talking about it for a minute. We uh, eventually went up the trail to join this, the other main group. And we were looking up at the sky. And we kind of did our thing looking up at the planets and all that. When we came back down the mountain, the object was gone. And we don't know what it was, but it was probably like 10 or 11. I'd say yeah, between 9 and 11 at night, I would say roughly. I don't remember the exact time, but I know it was between like about 9 and 11 at night. Um, the next morning, we had to actually walk past that same part on the trail to go or do archery and BB gun shooting the next day. And I remembered my mom, me, and the same parent and her kids stopped there and started talking about what we had seen the night before in that same area. And uh, this is in the daytime, of course. And I remembered we couldn't see any kind of impressions or anything where the object was sitting and you couldn't see any kind of evidence this thing was there. But uh, I still to this day don't know what it was. The only thing I could wrap my mind around is that it was possibly some kind of a UFO or a UFO, uh, I don't know, some kind of alien-like object that was sitting hmm. there for some reason. I don't know what it, what its purpose was. or It wasn't gigantic, I'd like to mention. It was about yeah. the size of a car, so it wasn't gigantic. Whatever like, a, it was. like a Volkswagen Beetle, but egg-shaped or something? Yeah, it was not, it was, that's what I would compare it to. Probably like, one, like, a, like the size of a car. So I don't know if there would be any kind of a living creature. If there was aliens inside this thing, it wouldn't be more than like one or two aliens, I guess, if you wanted to... Uh, Get into that, but uh, can I just like I said uh, when we were there, you couldn't see any kind of windows or openings or anything. I don't know really what it was doing up there. Jeremy, did did you look up in the sky at that at the time that you saw this craft to see if well, there was, was anything going was, on in there? Uh, when we went up to like the sky watching area where we were looking at the planets and everything, we did actually see weird lights in the sky, um, but. At that point in time, because I was little, I wasn't I wasn't really paying attention. But I do remember my mom to this day when you bring that story up. She will say that her and some of the older people were talking about lights in the sky. And I do remember them talking about it, but I didn't see it for myself at that time. So this was an egg-shaped thing sitting like on a tripod legs that had sort of a point coming off the mm -hmm. side of it. What color would you – and it was about the size of a – like a car. Yeah, it was like uh, a silver gray looking color. Actually, on my blog, on my website, I drew a diagram of uh, what I thought the object looked like. And I did, I think it was about two, three weeks ago, I did the post. Where do I go to see this? In the gallery? Um, it's on my blog. It's to the right. The blog. Okay. Yep. Nevada UFO blog. We're and then it look should say 1998. It should be the second or third one from the top. Second or third one from the top. Let's see. That one. This one? The mouse. Yeah, click on that one. Okay. 
And if you okay. scroll down, you'll see the diagram I drew of the. So this is the location. If you see, this is Las Vegas right over here and the trails going up here and then off up into this is the actual location where the sighting occurred to the Southwest mm -hmm. of Las Vegas. This is a great site, by the way, I was poking around here and I was like, Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. I wish I had a week to go through this to prepare for the show. Yeah. There's so much. So that's a, my, uh, I drew that, but I'm not very good at drawing, but that's uh, the way I drew it. Like about two, three weeks ago. Gotcha. That's exactly the way I visualized it from your description. So and if you go down, I drew another drawing. diagram of where we were standing and like where the object would have been. Okay, so that's where you guys were kind of, and this is yeah, a Yeah, and it was like there was a group road. of trees, like it, the, the trees got thick a little ways off, but it was kind of where the tree line starts, I guess is the best way to word it. So it wasn't like hidden in the trees. It was like right at the edge of the trees. That's so odd. And, and what's well, really, yes. If I, if I could just interject, because I've been to this location. Yeah. And, and I, I could tell you there, there's a ton of trees out there. And there are no people. Even even now, even though that there is some construction going on, it's still very sparsely populated. But uh, are these like ju like junipers, like the desert scrub brush tri type no, trees these, that you find in are, Nevada? Or these are pretty decent. They're trees, real trees. Right? Yeah, um, it seems unlikely because we're so close to the desert. But I think this is part of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. So you have really rich, uh, thick forested areas, um, and it. it you know, there, there are trails, walking trails and, and vehicle uh, dirt roads to get in and out of there. But again, hardly anybody goes in there. Yeah, it's so odd. You have an encounter like that. You're like a young kid. This thing mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be doing anything. It's just like sitting on the ground. Uh, and yeah. then it, it, the it's always so strange that there's the craft itself seems small enough that you wouldn't expect it to be suited for like uh, extra stellar travel. Like if yeah. you're going to get into something the size of like a minivan, you wouldn't want to fly across deep space, you know? So there would have had to have been a bigger craft somewhere, somewhere else. I think that it would, I don't think something that size would have went through like deep space or anything. There would have had to have been something bigger, whether it be up in the sky or on the ground somewhere, but yeah, it didn't really do anything. It was just sitting there, but I can't think of any object that would be shaped like that least whether it be a boat or a car or and I, and the weird thing is why would it be sitting on like three to four stilts is another thing i can't figure out like even if i even if like it was like man-made i can't think of what would be the purpose yeah it feels like i mean even if it was a drone to do that that sounds like something out of an old 1950s sci-fi movie yeah, or the, some where they would fly it across the screen on a wire or something like yeah and that was in 1998 too 1998 yeah so that's really odd. So you did just you, you didn't see any uh, thing outside the craft, or was it emitting any light? It was just like a pewter color. Or yeah, there was no lights on or anything. It looked like it was. It looked like it wasn't like whoever, if it was being controlled by something. It looks like they weren't really even trying to hide it. It was just kind of sitting off the side of the trail, uh, and it was like I said, if you wanted to, you could have walked up to it easily. As an adult nowadays, I would have walked up to it. But at that point in time, I guess being a kid, I didn't think about it. But. Uh, if I saw that same thing, like right now, I'd go go walk the trail and go walk towards it. Yeah, how far away was it from you? You got on the, from the diagram. It looked like it was only um, like twenty feet away. Yeah, it was like twenty or thirty feet away. Like you could have easily like thrown a rock at it or something if you really wanted to. It. Uh, I can't. I kind of can't believe we didn't walk towards it, but I think it's because uh, there was other 
campers and things nearby, like other kids. And my mom said uh, about a year ago, she didn't want to scare the other kids by saying something about it to the other adults. But I yeah. do remember my mom clearly talking to uh, the main leader of the group. And I remember her talking to that other parent about it like that night and a couple days afterwards. Interesting. So this has uh, occurred when you were just a young kid up there on the mountains, but that mm -hmm. obviously stuck with you because you yes. haven't stopped since then. And as soon as you were old enough, old enough, you started researching the paranormal, paranormal, uh, the sand Yeti type encounters and the uh, more UFO crash locations and oh, sites yeah. and things like that. I wanted to talk about that. Was there anything that sort of uh, impressed on you or, that got you into the paranormal that relates to that? Or is that like a separate um, Well, there's another weird story related to that. Okay. Um, in the old days, I actually used to have a forum uh, in the early 2000s. That tells you how old this was. <laughs> I originally posted that story on a forum. And uh, I, got an, I got a message on a forum from a guy. He says that he was working for a company outside of Las Vegas in the 19... Uh, sorry, I don't have my computer in front of me, so I can't look up the exact dates. It was like the late 70s, early 80s. I think it was 1982. He was working for a company that was supposed to be drilling underground tunnels leading from uh, Mountain Springs, Nevada, up to Area 51. Hmm. He said it was supposed to be a high-speed underground train. And the purpose of the tunnels were they were supposed to be close enough to Vegas to where people that lived here could take the train as workers to Area 51 but it was far enough outside of Vegas to where regular people wouldn't be like going out there to go snoop around. Uh, for those of your listeners who aren't aware of the general area, Mountain Springs is very close to Mount Potosi. It's a little tiny little town. And uh, the only major city is Pahrump on the other side of the mountains. Right. But this guy said that he was part of some crew that was supposed to be drilling these tunnels or making these tunnels, however you want to word it. And uh, he, I, I didn't believe his story at first. So I asked him to send me some pictures. And believe it or not, the guy actually did send me pictures of the tunnels from like the late 90s, early 2000s. Hmm. And it looked like there was a, clearly a parking lot. There was like a guard shack or a guard house. And it looked like it wasn't down in the, on the, in the desert valley. It looked like it was kind of up high a little bit, I guess, the best way to word it. It's kind of higher up. But it wasn't like up in the cliffs or anything, but it looked like it was like purposely they built it higher up so you could see if people are coming from a distance, I think. So I haven't gone out there and looked for the entrance to the tunnels or anything myself. I don't even know if they're still used, but I have the general area where it's at. I was telling Andrew about it a while back. Yeah, that's really interesting. It makes you wonder if they picked the location for Area 51 and to build that secret base just simply because mm -hmm. of the dry lake beds out there are great for doing test flights or whatever. But when you start to look into it, it makes you wonder if they found something or if it was mm -hmm. already uh, a hot spot or if there was some sort of ancient mm -hmm. crash site or monolithic structures or uh ancient civilization already underground that they discovered some technology of some kind. And then they built the base right over top of all of that uh, and yeah. the tunnel systems and things. But there's a lot of different theories about that. What would, what's your take on all that? Um, I'm not exactly sure why they would build the tunnels where they chose to build them or why the base is where it is. 
I do know that in the late 1970s and early 80s, the Rand Corporation, uh, they actually posted four different papers and they were in the Los Angeles Times, I think it was. And they were describing the tunnels that they said could go. They weren't building them to Area 51, but they said you could build tunnels anywhere in length the United States with all these underground subways. And uh, this was a couple years before this guy said they started building these tunnels to Area 51. And I do know the last two papers that the guy wrote, uh, his name was Robert Salter, I believe was the guy's name. So when Salter wrote these papers, he did say the government wanted to actually act on the, the underground subway system. And uh, so I do believe the government was showing interest in it. And would they have actually built it? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But according to the guy that sent me these pictures and told me this story, um, I don't believe he was working for the Rand Corporation, but he did say that there was a second crew that was over in Texas somewhere building a tunnel towards them. So I guess that they were supposed to link up. So there could be tunnel systems that go all the way to California, all the way over yeah, to Texas. Yeah, because I do know for sure. He says that he quit working on the project before it was finished, so he doesn't know what happened after he quit. But I believe he quit in 1982 or 1983. And uh, his co-workers, I guess he stayed in touch with a couple of them, uh, they were saying they actually finished the tunnel, according to what he was saying. But he didn't see it finished himself, though. It doesn't surprise me. Honestly, I'm down in southern Utah right now, about an hour and a half away uh, from Area 51 to the east. And there's honestly times at night, and this sounds bizarre, but I've been woke up because I thought there was like an earthquake. And I've realized it's almost like a scheduled, regular uh, underground vibration. And I've literally, I rolled over and have told my wife before and been like, I swear there's like a train tunnel that goes under town here or deep underground under the, the house, because it, it feels yeah. like a, like a freight train going underneath uh, the ground deep in the earth. And you get this vibrational sensation on the bed uh, mm -hmm. and it'll wake me up when I'm sleeping at night and stuff. And when you drive around and try to poke and prod and investigate in around the area 51 area, there's so much evidence of that. When you look around, like vent pipes and and uh, giant uh, water tanks and different types of uh, solar panel installations and different things just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, mm -hmm. just poking up all over the ground. And it almost looks like the earth has been disturbed in a, in a strange way. But the way that the, the dirt and the soil and the whole region of the geology of mm -hmm. Nevada would be prime for hiding all of that stuff and keeping it hidden you know you don't have all these giant root systems from big trees or anything it's just a lot of uh uh granite and quartz and and uh, sandstone that would be really easy for them yeah. to to borrow through and everything and, and build these tunnel systems so that's really fascinating so how did you get involved in like the uh going out and investigating and researching and interviewing people and maybe tell us uh kind of your first jumping head first into the UFO investigations around Area 51 and maybe possible UAP crash sites? Yeah, well, the UFO investigating, um, as far as the UFO crashes go, uh, I used to do a podcast about 10, 15 years ago. I used to do a podcast. And one day we were doing a podcast on just UFO crashes in, the, in Nevada in general. 
and we had different people that were calling in and saying their version of what they think happened with different events. And uh, I got asked about a specific UFO crash that happened in 1952 over in Ely, Nevada. At that point in time, I didn't know anything about it. And uh, I kind of told him I'd get back to him about it. Well, if you go look up Ely's UFO crash online, the only thing that was on the internet until I got started looking into this was they had a specific date. It was uh, August of 1952, and it says Ely, Nevada, and 16 alien bodies. That's basically the only thing I had to work off of. 16 alien bodies? That's what they said. Uh, I could get into that in a little bit later. I could tell you about how many and all that. But um, originally they said there were 16 alien bodies. Well, there was basically no nothing on the internet about this. I contacted George Knapp, I believe, was the first uh, more famous UFO name I contacted. He said that no one in Ely will talk to you. He said people know the story, but they won't talk to you because if you're not from there, they kind of aren't willing to talk to you for whatever reason. Um, I got lucky because my grandmother was actually a school teacher in the area over in the next town over Eureka, Nevada. And she actually knew people that lived in Ely. So uh, my grandma introduced me to a few people in the community and basically friends of friends started talking to me and for, I started gaining their trust because they knew my grandmother. And then after I started getting to know one person, they kind of told their friend like, Hey, Jeremy's not a bad guy. He, He's not a crazy or anything. And uh, one thing led to another. And I got eventually I made it to the Art Bell show, his uh, Midnight in the Desert. I ended up going on the Ely Times newspaper quite a few times. And uh, they ended up putting my information in the newspaper. And I started getting people calling me and coming, coming forward, telling me about all, not just UFO crashes, but uh, stories about lights chasing cars up in the mountains. I got stories of abductions and all kinds of things. And now to, to this day, I'm still uh, featured in the Ely Times every once in a while. I was, I'm on the White Pine County Tourism for UFOs about, I think it was Thanksgiving or Christmas time was the last time I was featured in that. Hmm. So um, I've done a lot of research into it. Like I said, we found the crash site. There's actually two UFO crashes up there and we'll get into details on that. Um, Don't I kind let him of, get away. Don't let him get away without telling you the story about <laughs> him and his crew chasing a light. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the best ones. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, uh, hey, with that, guys, I got to go jump on my own live stream that's starting in about 30 minutes. But yeah, it was I, cool I, hanging I, out with you guys. Thanks for letting me jump in, Carl. Yeah, and if you guys want to hear a whole other interview, make sure and go check out Andrew's channel over on Dead Hand Radio on his channel. A uh, great guy has a lot of cool interviews that he does over on his show. So make sure and go check out Andrew. Thanks for joining us and helping awesome. me out here, bud. Appreciate it. And Jeremy, you and I'll talk soon. Yep, for sure. All right, guys. Take care. Thank you, Jer or Andrew. So, yeah. Jeremy, yeah, let's uh, dig into this. So you say there's there was bodies recovered. You went up and interviewed the local people, thanks to your grandma, knowing people. Because you're right. You get up in that region. I've been up into Rachel and you go into the little yeah. alien and try to talk to people and ask them, so what do you think and stuff? And there's kind of a weird vibe, you know, uh, oh, people, yeah. they'll, they kind of look at you funny and, and it's nothing personal about them if they're actually introvert, but you would think they'd be all excited to talk about this topic. But when you actually mm -hmm. start asking real questions, it's like the locals, 
are really standoffish and they, they have uh, these canned responses they, well, unless they know you, you know? Yeah, they don't like Las Vegas specifically because the state's like the lower half of Nevada is kind of a whole different world from the northern half of the state. So they don't like um, they don't like Las Vegas in general. So if you say you're from Vegas, that's already like one strike against you. <laughs> yeah. And, and then the next thing is um, they really are afraid of big time media coming in and destroying their town because it is all a town of only 3000 people. Right. And uh, that's why they wouldn't talk to George Knapp is because he was going up there with film trucks and crews and things. And they don't like that. And Andy's from Vegas, of course. So he had two strikes against them just before he even said anything. But um, so uh, to start with the UFO crashes, I kind of have to give you give your audience a background here. Okay. So Ely, Nevada was built and started to be built in the 1870s as a stagecoach stuff. The railroad ended up coming in in about 1906. And uh, with the founding of the railroad, they opened up a series of big mines in the area. And they would use the railroad to bring the ore that they would mine out of these mines up to market or up to the smelters. So there's three towns in White Pine County, three main towns. It's and they're kind of in the in the shape of a if you can if you think of like a straight line. To the far right is a town called Ruth. Right. Ruth is where the big copper mine is. That's one of the biggest ones in the country. It's called the Robinson Copper Mine. And over in the middle is Ely. Ely is kind of the main population center of the county, and it's only about 3,500 people. And Ely is where the main railroad station is, so the railroad depot, whatever you want to call it. And uh, nowadays, it serves as like the, one of the biggest and best preserved railroad museums in the country. And they still do like train rides and things. Um, and then if you go to the far left, there's a town called McGill, Nevada. McGill, Nevada is where they used to smelt the ores, that, the ore that was mined over in the mine. So the purpose of the towns, two out of the three towns were company towns. Ruth was built by uh, Kennecott, or the Nevada Consolidated Copper Company, sorry. And then they also built McGill, Nevada. So, so uh, strategically, one is located 12 miles south and one is located 12 miles north of Ely. So they all served a purpose. Um, so the story goes that over in 1952 is what the internet says. I think January 17th, 1953 specifically, and I'll get into that in just a second, is when I considered when this event happened. Um, over in this mine, it's called the Robinson Copper Mine, like I said. They were mining copper over on the night shift, and they saw a strange object glowing a purple, uh, a purple and a blue color, and it was starting to lose altitude. It was coming from the east. So this object was kind of gliding over the mountains and it was losing altitude. It was silent and it wasn't on fire or anything, but they could tell like whatever this object was, uh, was losing altitude. Well, it ends up coming down really low over this copper mine. And that's when uh, this security guard, I'll call him Pete. Pete was a security deputy for the uh, Nevada it was called Kennecott at that time. Sorry, I had to think there for a minute. The Kennecott Corporation owned the mine. So he was a, the Kennecott security deputy, and he saw this object coming down overhead. Well, this object ended up disappearing over an area that they call the Keystone Dump. Hmm. And uh, he saw it disappear, and he was basically one of the only people that had the authority to drive around and leave their workstation and go see what was going on. 
So Pete drives his truck over to the other side of the Keystone dump. And for your listeners that don't know, a dump is basically where they would drop, they bring all the dirt that they dig up out of the ground that doesn't have any kind of, uh, any kind of ores or minerals. And it's basically like it's their trash dirt. They dump it in a big piles off to the side. So the object disappeared. He drives his truck over and he sees there's this long cylindrical object sitting on a snowbank. It didn't explode. It didn't burst into a million pieces or anything. But this object was just sitting there on a snowbank and it was glowing the purple and the blue color. So Pete gets back in his truck and he drives back to where he came from, the main security office, and he picks up a guy named Vern. Vern gets in the truck with Pete and they drive back to where this object was. And Vern, of course, gets out of the truck and him and Pete are having a discussion about what, what, what's this object or what, what could it be? Um, they, of course, Vern doesn't know what to do either. So they take a third trip back to the office again. This time they load the whole bed of the truck up with miners. There's about 12 of them total. Like a flatbed? Uh, yeah. Or, okay. It, it's more just like a pickup truck. Oh, okay. But it's like a 1950s pickup truck. So yeah, you just picture like a 1950s pickup truck. All right. And they uh, load this truck up and they drive on a third trip back over to the UFO. So they describe the object this time. I talked to about nine of the 12 guys that were there. Uh, almost all of them are deceased nowadays. So um, they get out of the truck. They're looking. And they said the object looked. This is one of the strangest things of the whole whole case they said it looked like it was wet like someone sprayed it down with a garden hose is what one guy was saying but it was wasn't dripping like a water it was dripping a molten look almost looked like syrupy ooze was coming off of this object and dripping on the ground like it was secreting some sort of a uh yeah like it was some kind or... of a i can't really wrap my head around it. it was something it wasn't melting snow it was like it was dripping something and uh, so in the middle of all this going on, they're looking at this thing. It's glowing and it's dripping this ooze. Um, one of the higher ups that was that stayed back at the office, the security office, he ends up calling the Ely Police Department. And the Ely Police Department calls the National Guard out. The National Guard is stationed over in Ely. Um, my notes here are the same. I, they're formed in 1949 they were an artillery unit so they weren't they weren't uh trained for this kind of thing they originally thought it was a small plane that had crashed was what the actual call said so the battery battalion a is what they're called the automatic weapons battalion they're an anti-aircraft group they're not trained to do any kind of roadblocks they're not trained to deal with ufos or anything like that so there was about 68 or 69 individuals end up gathering up and they're stationed over in Ely. Like I said, it's about 12 miles away. So these guys pull up into the mine. They block off the main entrance to the mine, which is over by the entrance to the town of Ruth, like I was saying. And while they're sealing off the mine, they end up kicking all these guys out that were the miners. They end up throwing all them out. And meanwhile, the actual military... The, the army, I guess you would call them, the army or the Air Force, they were called from Hill Air Force Base in Ogden, Utah, to the north. 
And that's about a four hour ride. So a convoy is heading down from the north. Meanwhile, this National Guard unit is trying to quarantine the area and they're kicking out all the miners and they form this roadblock over by Ruth. Um, most of the stories I have, as far as the military goes, come from this battery battalion A, the automatic weapons battalion. Hmm. Because again, they were just normal guys like you or me and they were just listed in the National Guard Almost like uh, almost like reserves, I guess you could call right. it. So really quick, so, just so people are clear, you have a Nevada. Let's see me get my hands straight here. You have Nevada down to the southwest and you have Area 51. And that whole area of the state all the way up to the northeast goes basically all the way to, is it Dugway? Or they call it Area 52 up by the Utah Salt Flats and then right over the the mountains there in the Uintah Basin is where Skinwalker Ranch, that whole area until basically you get to I-15 is just open desert airfield military testing for miles yes. and hundreds of miles. I mean, you could drive for six, seven hours and not see anything other than these tiny little small desert remote towns with uh, small populations all, all the way out there that are basically just cattle ranchers and, and people that own land or do prospecting and mining and things like that. But otherwise the entire state is just like airfield testing and military testing all the way across Nevada, all the way up into the uh, Northwest side of Utah. So they actually sent a crew down from Hill air force base uh, from Utah to get there almost quicker from than from area 51. Well, Area 51 in that point in time, since it was the early 50s, uh, it was mostly dirt runways with a few buildings and a few hangars out there. So it wasn't as sophisticated as it is nowadays. Right. Um, so before I get to the point of when the military arrived, um, there's a couple of stories I'd like to say. So the object wasn't only seen by the miners. Um, there was a famous story. Uh, it was featured in Weird Nevada. Um there was a dinner party that was going on over in Ely. And like I said, this is about 12 miles away. And they said that while they're having this dinner party, uh, all the guests were outside. It was about, about 10 at night, they were saying. And that's when they saw this object glowing, coming down over the mountains, going, going towards the mine. Um, one of the other stories I have, and this is really helpful in finding the crash site, there was a group of Boy Scouts that were camped over on Ward Mountain Ward Mountain is one of the taller peaks in the area, and it's at a higher elevation than the mine itself. Hmm. So this group of Boy Scouts saw the object crash, and uh, then between them, the dinner party, and where the security guard pointed out the Keystone dump, I was able to find the crash site. Um, so really quick, um, so there's this quarantine zone set up by the National Guard. The people are coming down from Hill Air Force Base. Uh, there's some individuals that went up to this roadblock that was formed over in Ruth, Nevada, and they said that the National Guard units were telling them all to go away, that they were just that a private plane had crashed, and they were saying that there was nothing special and to go home, basically. Well, the people in Ruth, even if you went home, you're literally, your homes are at the roadblock, literally. Yeah. So you, you can't get away from this. So the people are sitting there in their homes watching this from their kitchens. They're sitting there um basically watching all of this stuff unfold so 
uh, I told you they blocked off the front entrance to the mine. Well, around two in the morning, the actual convoy from Hill Air Force Base arrives, but they go through the backside of the mine, not where the roadblock is, but the backside. There's no one at the backside of the mine. Uh, so they pull in, they load the object up on these flatbed trucks. Uh, and I believe that there was about 20 vehicles, I was told. Mm. They had uh, half tracks. They had just flatbed trucks. And they quarantined this whole area. And they took off like they took off like lightning out the backside of the mine. They said that they the even the National Guardsmen barely had a chance to talk to them to figure out what was going on. They left so quick. Well, um, the path that they took was kind of like a horseshoe shape. If you could picture like a horseshoe or like a U, they basically went, they went west and then they went down and then they went east again. They brought, basically they brought this thing to area 51. Um, I talked to a woman who says that her dad was one of the guys that was driving the trucks. Hmm. And he says that they went to a, a airfield with dirt runways. And uh, for those of your listeners that aren't familiar with the area Area 51 had dirt runways in the early 50s. The other closest military base would have been Creech Air Force Base, far down to the south in Indian Springs. But they, of course, had real runways and everything at that point in time. So wouldn't have been there. And they didn't go north to Hill Air Force Base because Hill Air Force Base, of course, was an actual military base at this point in time. And they had real runways. And in Indian Springs, really quick, is one of the locations where you get former military people who have come out and said that when they were doing weather balloon operations, they're working for the air force that they actually had encounters out in the desert in the night with uh, tall, mm-hmm. tall white, uh, like extraterrestrial type entities that basically haunted them almost paranormally where people were terrified to go out and do their job and would fake in the log books that they went out and did their job and, oh, turn, yeah. in we- and turn in weather reports when they actually didn't because they were too scared to go out uh, alone or with their crew out into these locations out uh, north of Indian Springs in the desert there. And it makes sense that they would mm-hmm. have to drive around in a strange way like that because those mountain ranges are pretty impassable. Uh, yeah, you and they were to... dodging all the main cities up in the area. Okay. Yeah, so, so they, can, go ahead. Yeah. So in order, when they did this horseshoe maneuver, the only major city – well, not, I wouldn't call it major, but the only – big community they had to drive by was the Duckwater Indian Reservation. Mm. And this is uh, over, it's over close to Ely. So some of the more famous stories I have, the ones that are popular that make it on the internet, um, they come from the individuals that were living on this Indian reservation. It's kind of like a collection of farms, I guess would be the best way of wording it. And some of these farms are built fairly close to the main highway. Um, One of the stories said that uh, I guess word was getting out that something was going on at the mine and people that lived over in Ruth or over in Ely were now calling people that live in these other small communities saying something was going on and people started to come outside and some people were trying to drive up to the area of the mine to see if they could see anything. Um, So the convoy, when it gets to the point of this Indian reservation, people are already outside and they're already thinking something, they're going to see something going on. Um, there was an individual, there was a man who said that he saw the truck drive by the main truck with the object was on a tarp, he said. And he said, you could see the tarp was flapping up in the wind. And he said they were going close to a hundred miles an hour. And he was saying that when the wind was blowing, you could see a 
times bits and pieces of whatever was under the tarp, you would see like the bottom of some kind of object under this tarp. Hmm. Um, the story that most people will know, there was a woman that had three kids and she was living on a different farm in this area. Well, the, the kids were in the middle of the road watching this convoy come down from the mountains because Ely is up in, the, up in the mountains, for those of your listeners that don't know. And duck water is kind of down where it starts flattening out. So uh, this convoy is going going down this mountain and this woman's kids are out in the road. Well, she said that the lead truck started honking the horns trying and telling the kids to get out of the way because they weren't stopping. They weren't slowing down for nothing. And like I was saying, they were going close to 100 miles an hour. And the woman said she had to run in the road and get her kids out of the way. And she says that they were maybe... Uh, a few steps off the side of the road and this convoy not slowing down or anything just flew by them. And she says that it was unusual to see that kind of military activity in that area because they do have the guard unit. Like I was saying that battery battalion, a automatic weapons battalion, but the guard unit, they have no reason to be out in the middle of the night and they wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't be doing going a hundred miles an hour down this road in the middle of the night. Um, so, she was saying that they came flying by them. And basically what happened was they brought this object to area 51, like I said, and I talked to different people that flew the airplanes and they brought this object from area 51 up to Hill air force base. And from Hill air force base, the object was flown to Wright Patterson air force base. And I don't know what happened to it once they got there. Um, so a few things I'd like to bring up about this specific incident uh, I did find the original investigator. I found the origin of the story. It was mm. originally investigated by a guy named Willard McIntyre. And he was part of uh, UFO groups in the 1960s and 70s. And uh, he actually told me that he was there in 1974, I believe it was. And he ended up talking to people mostly from the Indian Reservation, where most of his stories came from. So I got some of his notes. And then, like I said, on my own, I found out about the National Guard unit and I found out about the people in Ruth and all that kind of stuff. But so you were able to piece together uh, doing just some gumshoe investigating, mm -hmm. like the not only the uh, Indian Reservation witnesses, but the lady with the children and then yeah. one of the truck drivers and basically these reports of people that were right there that saw the, the thing on the ground and from their yeah. home, the entire barricade. And you've been able to kind of triangulate this story around to, to yeah. piece together exactly where they took the object and, and who came and got it and who was involved in kind of the frantic race to cover this whole thing up. Well, because I started researching this in 2008. And like I said, I was 18 then. Now I'm 31. But um, most of the witnesses are now there. They're not around anymore. Most of them died by this point. Hmm. But... Um, even Willard himself, I believe, last I looked, he, he's not around anymore either. So there were some stories about men in black or what I would call military police in the area shortly after this happened. I know that they were present in Ruth, and I know that they were present on the Indian Reservation about two weeks after this happened. They were saying that they were telling people they didn't see what they saw and that if they, uh, if they spoke about it, that they would go to jail or their families would be killed and things like that. Um, most of the people that got 
tracked down by these men in black or these military police officers revert to physical evidence. Mm. When I say physical evidence, I'd like to point out, I told you this object was dripping a molten ooze on the ground. Well, when they picked this object up and they drove off with it, it left almost perfect on the ground, the shape of the craft, I guess it left um, this molten material on the ground. And some of these miners picked up this material and brought it home with them. And some mm. of these people actually handled this material. Well, these guys were, the military police were going to these guys' houses trying to get this material back. And they did get most of it back. Um, I've actually seen some of the material. I've handled some of it. I've seen it before. It's like a dark reddish brown looking color. It's very heavy for its size. I know a couple of the people actually got it tested and the people that got it tested were saying that it's basically high in iron content from one of the guys that got tested. He said it was very high in iron content and that it's magnetic and whatever it was, basically, to make a long story short, it's almost as if this object was dripping metal slag of some kind, like an iron slag. It's only the best way I could word it. Yeah, you actually hear that a lot in you in uh, UAP UFO phenomenon sightings. That yes. it seems to be like dumping something in the water or giving off some sort of like a slag, molten metal that melts the sand or the dirt around. And a lot of it that they assume is like uh, uh, like a crash site is more like it's stopping to dump its waste or something to take yeah. off again, or or there's like some sort of a residual after effect of these things manifesting into our dimension of reality and then trying to leave again. Or when they have a failure, they give off this waste. But it mm -hmm. seems like uh, so you've actually seen and handled some of this yeah. slag uh, and and kind of its well, effects and it, it's definitely anomalous looking stuff yeah so i know at least a, uh, one of the guys got this material tested and another thing i'd like to point out besides the metal slag by this point of course now it's hardened into rocks because it's been 60 years but um there was another type of rock that he was showing me and he says that the ground underneath where this craft was sitting was so hot that it kind of fused the sand together almost in like these weird rocks I've handled those too. They're uh, hollow, almost like a, it almost looks like honeycombed, and mm. it's uh, it feels like hollow and almost like weightless when you pick it up. So I've seen the slag and handled it. I've handled this burnt or fused sand, whatever you want to call it. Um, like I said, I don't believe the crash happened in August of 1952, like the internet says. Mm. I actually point towards January 17th of 1953. Um, one thing I'd like to point out is if the crash really happened in August of 1952, uh, it doesn't really snow in Ely in August. Usually it starts around Halloween time. And the object was said to have been resting on a snowbank in the middle of the night. So uh, that's one clue that I have. The next one, uh, McIntyre, the original investigator, told me that he believed it was 1953, but he didn't state specifically a date. Mm. Um, I have looked at all the newspapers in the area. Um, in July 17th or 8th, I think it's the 18th, I found a newspaper and it states that there was a very heavy rainstorm around 9 or 10 at night over by Ely. And then it turned into a blizzard, like whiteout condition, like a heavy snowstorm shortly after in the same night. 
And that's the night that I believe the UFO crash happened. Because uh, it said that all the power was knocked out in Ely temporarily. And it says that to stay in your houses and it had all these weird warnings. So um, I believe it was January 17th of 1953. You get that in the story of the Roswell crash and those and supposedly there was two locations of that crash as mm-hmm. well. A lot of people don't realize that, but that it was a, a, a big mm-hmm. uh, thunderstorm and you'll get these crazy monsoon storms throughout this region across Arizona, all the way through Utah and Nevada in the deserts here where uh, it'll be completely fine and calm. And then out of nowhere, you'll get insanely high wind speeds and rain and giant uh, thunderclouds and lightning storms. And that was supposedly what happened even at at Roswell, these crazy uh, lightning strikes in the sky arcing across that may well, have interfered with the flight capabilities of these craft. Ely's famous for having really bad weather kind of year round. It snows basically every month of the year, but it mainly snows, of course, from like October to March or October right. to April. Um, Ely is very high up in the mountains. You don't realize it until you kind of like look on Wikipedia or something. It's about 6,500 feet up. Um the other thing I'd like to say, it's really isolated. Like I said before, it's about a three or four hour drive to the nearest big city. There's just a handful of small communities up in the area. And Ely is one of the biggest ones and it's only 3,500 people. So this area is one of the most remote areas in the lower 48. Hmm. Um, so this object crashed, I believe in 1953. There's something I'd like to point out. It'll make sense in just a moment, but it's going to sound like it kind of is off topic here for a minute. Um, so the U-2 spy plane came out and one, one of them was shot down in Eastern Europe. So the United States military was trying to come up with a successor to the U-2, something that could fly higher, something that could fly faster. And they came up with what was called the X-15 rocket plane. The X-15 rocket plane, for those of your listeners that aren't aware, uh, it's basically a test airplane that would be brought up into the air by an Air Force bomber, and it would be dropped mid-flight, and it would basically kick on these afterburners, or whatever you want to call it, kick on the main rocket, and it could fly in the lower atmosphere at supersonic speeds. To this day, it still holds the the record for uh, the fastest that we've ever gone in an airplane. And this airplane could fly in a lower atmosphere. And then when it was done or when it ran out of fuel, it would glide down to the ground like a military glider would, and it could land on a runway. So the military was building these X-15s and doing tests on these. And so in order to do this, they had to make a flight corridor. So they formed a flight corridor going diagonally they would the airplane would take off from Edwards Air Force Base over by Palmdale, and then it would fly diagonally up to Beatty, Nevada, which is north of Vegas. And they had and then from there it would go up to Ely, and then from Ely it would fly over by Salt Lake City. And in order to track the plane, they had to build these radar tracking stations. And there was uh, four of them. There was one in Edwards Air Force Base, which was the main one. They had one in Beatty, Nevada. They had one on top of Kimberly Mountain, which is over outside of Ely. Mm. And then they had one, of course, over by Hill Air Force Base. So they would track the testing of this of this rocket plane. Well, construction began in the mid-1950s, and they became operational in 1959. And 
the one over in Ely was built on top of Kimberly Mountain. Kimberly Mountain overlooks what they call Copper Flats, which is that mining area I told you where the 1953 object had crashed. And uh, it also overlooks most of the county. It's one of the tallest mountains. So they were tracking this X-15 rocket plane as it would make its way from California going up towards uh, Hill Air Force Base. Well, the, uh, the tracking station was operated by the Air Force and NASA until 1979. And then the Air Force took it over by themselves and it ran it until 1992. Hmm. So the, uh, the place was used to track cruise missiles later on. It was used to track other test aircraft. Uh, I was even told by some of the guys that worked there that occasionally they would even track like UFOs and things like that. So this plays a role, a major role in the Ely UFO crash. And I'll get there in just a second. So in order for them to track this rocket plane, the radar tracking stations of that era generally had a range of 25 miles. Um, in order to up the ante to 50 miles, you had to double the power Oh, sorry, I was like waving at me. Roblox shorts. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, so in order to get a bigger range, you had to double the power on these radar tracking towers. And of course, radar was fairly new during World War II, and it wasn't really perfected until, I don't know, probably like Vietnam era, maybe a little bit after. So these, this technology was fairly new. Um, so they were tracking this X-15 rocket plane, and all of a sudden, in 1964, a second UFO crash actually did happen. Hmm. Um, I but was now, featured. But in now the they have all these tracking systems in place to track the uh, X-15 plane. Yes. And so they, so now they uh, have learned from the previous crash how to handle this a little bit better. And so there's a lot more that occurs. Yeah. So okay. these original radar tracking towers. They would give a lot of the operators would get cancer. A lot of the communities that were close by would get weird sicknesses and cancers because, like I said, in order to make these things work properly, you had a very high amount of power going through these things uh, and hardly any shielding because this was new technology. And then in order to double this range, they doubled the power. So that's basically twice the, mm. twice the likeliness that you're going to get sick from this. And uh, so I was featured in the Ely Times. I'll go back to this radar in just a second. This that'll make sense. So I was featured in the Ely Times newspaper, and I was speaking about this 1953 UFO crash. When suddenly, a couple of days later, I got a call from a guy. He said that he was on a. This was a totally separate incident. I had no. I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. So he said that he was a, a brake man on one of the true on one of the train crews coming from the mine to that from Ruth to the town of McGill. McGill, mm. like I said, is the town where they smelt the ore that they mine over into usable product. So he says that they had just left McGill and they were bringing the ore up to Seattle to bring it to market. He says they came around to bend in the railroad tracks and up ahead he could see trouble. He said that the tracks were destroyed like pretzels and they were thrown all over the place and bent. So he hit the brakes on the train and they came to a sudden stop. Well, as sudden as a train can stop, I guess. <laughs> so they came to a stop and he says, what was weird about it was when they stopped, he says, if you look off to your left, there's a farmer's field. And if you look in straight in front of you, of course, there's the railroad tracks. And if you look over to the right, there's like a little mountain. 
So he says off to his left, he could see that there was some kind of strange wreckage thrown out all around this farm field. And there was strange bodies and strange creatures was his exact words that were laying around in this field. Hmm. And then whatever this object was, it hit that field, bounced, hit, destroyed the railroad tracks because they hit the tracks. And then whatever this object was hit the side of this mountain and exploded. So whatever this object was, he says it was shaped like a cigar, like a, like a, like a cigarette or a cigar. And when this object hit, it hit end first onto the ground. And it was kind of flipping like this, like end over end. And whatever was inside was just got thrown out all around this farm field, all over the railroad tracks. And when it finally hit the side of this mountain, it exploded in like a big ball of flames. Hmm. So he says they uh, were wondering what was going on. So he said they got out of the craft and they were looking around. And he says what he he said, the first thing he said was, what the hell? And he said he looked over and he said that there was three to four women on horseback. And if they didn't know who these women were, they came riding off, uh, off into the distance like they had been there before the train got there. And he was saying that they didn't even they didn't the two groups didn't talk to each other. There's seven people on a train crew and all seven people got off and they're looking around wondering what was going on. This was in 1964. So they contacted dispatch over in the over in Ely where the Nevada Northern Railway train station was. And uh, dispatch, they send a wrecking train, a wrecking crane over to the site of this crash. They didn't say it was a UFO, of course. They didn't know what it was at this point. Um, So a wrecking crane, I actually have it over in my gallery on my website. The the wrecking crane, it's basically a a very strong crane that rides on a boxcar, almost like like a, like a, it's a rail crane, I guess, is the best way to word it. It's used to pick up railroad accidents. Um, yeah, it should be there. Yeah, there it is. Okay. That's the wrecking crane. Um, so they sent that same exact crane that you're looking at on the pictures. That crane was sent down the tracks to the site of this accident. And what the, the way the crane works is it picks up the boxcars one by one and moves it. And it, it'll, it moves it behind the crane, I guess, is the best way to word it. Like you'll pick up a boxcar that's in front of you, put it behind you, scoot forward a little bit, grab the next one, put it behind you, go forward a little bit. And it did that until it got to the point of this crash. Meanwhile, dispatch also called that battery battalion A once again from Ely. And uh, they drove north of town to this other crash site. Yeah, that's uh, me and my friend Nick at the crash site. Uh, So... This battalion, this battery battalion A, once again had to hold the crash site for three to four hours while a convoy came from Hill Air Force Base to this area of the crash. What you're looking at right there is the farmer's field nowadays, where that object hit. Mm. So it bounced um, off the ground here, went end over end. Mm-hmm. It went, it went, uh, yeah, where the cameraman was standing is basically where the object hit, like when it bounced. Oh, okay. So it hit so where the I cameraman actually, is standing. Yeah, and I then was it, actually sitting inside a a, a side by. That's the tracks nowadays overgrown. They haven't been used since the early '80s. Right. Okay. So uh, I was actually in a side by side, like a, a ATV, when I took the other picture. So, um, going back to what I said before, people ask me, 
why do you think this object crashed? They're so advanced, they could come from another galaxy or another world. If they're so technologically advanced, how could they come here and crash? Well, I do have an answer for that. I do believe that radar tracking tower had something to do with it. Because that radar mm. tracking tower is about 30 to 40 miles away from this crash site. And like I said, they have a, a maximum range of about 50 miles in that, in that time frame. I talked to Scott Ramsey. He investigated the Aztec UFO crash. And there's three or four radar tracking towers down there. And like we were saying earlier, there's roughly the two UFO crash, the two crash sites in Roswell. Then there's another UFO crash site over in Aztec, if you believe in that, a year later. Hmm. Um, I spoke with uh, Harry Drew. He did the Kingman UFO crash of 1953. They had the same exact type of radars there about 13 miles outside of town at a place called Radar Hill. And two UFOs did crash out there in 1953. Hmm. So if you ask around, these radar tracking towers, for one reason or another, there's always at least one or two UFO crashes in the same general area where these radar towers are built. I don't know why they crash. Or why, I don't know how they interfere with the UFO causing them to crash. And that, uh, right there, there's the pictures of the site nowadays. Um, nowadays, they have some of the original equipment, but they have some modern-day cell phone towers and stuff up there, too. So you think that maybe the radiation or electromagnetic interference That's uh, what I think. or the side effects of having those amped up and being primitive at the time may have interfered with the uh, control of these. Yes. And uh, if you look at um, UFO crash lists, like they have lists on some websites, there's like a disproportionate amount of UFO crashes in the 50s and 60s. I believe it's because that's the time frame where they're I'll explain the picture if you go back one. Yeah, I'll explain that. So I think um, there's a disproportionate amount of crashes on those lists in the 50s and 60s, because that's when they were experimenting with that specific type of radar tower. Oh, OK. Um, so the picture we're looking at right there, you can see there's like a little hill. He called it a mountain, but it's like a little hill. OK, um, you can see that that specific part of the hill is destroyed right here. Yes. And one reason we found the crash site uh was that's the service road on the left side. You can see on the left side of the foes, like a little road. That was the maintenance crew for the railroad built that little road. Okay. And the tracks, you can see there's like a bunch of sagebrush on the left side of the road. That's where the tracks are, but it's all overgrown. So the railroad tracks go along and yeah, parallel right where your mouth is going all the way down diagonally is where the tracks are. And they would drive up this. And so this object came in from this direction and it took came out... from the left side of your screen and went okay. to the right. So it came in from this side, hit the field off to the left here, yeah. destroyed the tracks, took out part of the, and then hit the hill here and exploded mm -hmm. into debris right there. Yes. Okay. And uh, so one reason, the ways that we know that that's, that's uh, close to the screen on the bottom right, that's another part of that destroyed hill. Okay. Um, part of the reasons we, the, the reasons that we know that's the crash site is people always ask is how do you know that's the site? Um. If you look in the area, there's about three to four ranches, old ranches in that area. If you use maps, you could find the old ranches that were around in that general era. Um, of course, there's the destroyed hill right there. There's no reason for that hill to be destroyed. Um, there's the farmer's field. If you're walking in that dark spot on the picture of the field, there's a clear indentation where that's a lower elevation right there 
now it's like it's swampy when you walk in that dark area you sink and it's almost like a swampy like really wet muddy type area yeah so you sink in that area and you could when you walk from the lighter colored area to the darker colored area like i said you could feel like the ground goes down like there's like a indentation of some kind hmm. and um if you go back to the picture of the destroyed hill with the road next to it yeah uh, that um, on the other picture, you can't really see. So you can see the ground is like a light color in this picture we're looking at right now. Um, what that hill is off to your right, those are dump sites from the mine, from the smelter. You keep, oh, okay. keep on this picture. So when they would smelt the ore into usable product, uh, go back one. Yeah, stay on that one for a second. Okay. So when they would make the ore into usable product, they would dump what they would call the, the waste product often a specific area outside of town. And what this hill is, is it's basically the marker saying the railroad owns this land, the mine owns this part of the land. Mm -hmm. On the left side where the railroad tracks and that service road were, that is owned by the Nevada Northern Railway. And okay. they're a separate entity from the mine. They work together, but they're two separate entities. And the mine owns that land on the right. So do well, you, this, is this hill, is road, this part of what they're dumping? Yes. So like after they're done mining, the leftover dirt and sand and rock that they don't want to keep and take to market, they they just use as kind of a berm to separate yeah. the, the land. Yeah, and there's actually like miles and miles of it for like as far as you could see. And then some of the piles are as tall as buildings and some of them are smaller. That's okay. actually a smaller one that's right there. Okay. But um, so when you're driving out there, so you see the damaged hill, you see the indentation. The ground is a very light colored uh, ground in that other picture we were looking at. But when you get to this specific area we're looking at right now, it gets to be a dark copper colored area. Like there's a lot of iron oxide that suddenly yes. was put there or, so it un was, or it went under a bunch of heat or temperature change. Yeah. Well, so what I think happened was when the UFO hit, it obviously damaged the hill and it damaged that portion of the ground. So what happened was the military filled in that damaged road using some of the dirt from that berm off to the right side. Mm -hmm. They filled in the damaged parts of the road. And uh, of course, because it's a copper by by byproduct, it's going to be copper colored dirt. And for some reason, there's a very long stretch of copper-colored sand in that little area. Hmm. And uh, one of the more intriguing things, I didn't, I don't think I have pictures of it on the website, but running alongside the tracks, there it would be off to the left side of the tracks, there is uh, telegraph poles. You might be able to see them in that picture of the field. Oh, right. I think I saw them in the... Yeah, if you can pull it up, the picture of the field... Let's see this one here. Uh, you could kind of see. You could see a small fence. Anyway, so there's like a telegraph poles between the – and if you go in that specific area, you could see that as far down as you could see in either direction, these telegraph poles go on for as far as you could see. But in that specific area, the two or three telegraph poles are torn down and damaged. They're so laying down like right here. We have the telegraph poles. It looks like going, here's a couple going yeah, on the other side. The and then right yeah, where so, this berm is destroyed, there's no poles. <laughs> yeah. There's like the telegraph poles are ripped down in that area. Like whatever the object was ripped through the wires or got caught in the wires and tore them down or whatever. Hmm. So everything points to that location. Um, 
Let's see. Sorry, I'm looking at some notes I have right here. You're good. So I got another story from a different individual later on. He was telling me that when he was a little kid, they lived off on a ranch outside of town. And he was telling me that his mom rode out one day and picked up pieces of a flying saucer, a spaceship, he called it. He picked up pieces of a spaceship and saw alien bodies hmm. off in the desert one day when he was a kid. And he has no idea I talked to these military guys or I talked to the guys that were on the train. And he was telling me his mom rode out to this crash site and he says that she picked up pieces of this object and put them in her saddlebag. And he was saying while the, while the woman was looking around, all of a sudden, a Nevada Northern Railway train came pulling up. And he says that she got scared when this train came pulling up and they rode away. Hmm. So, so wait, this was the, was this the three ladies on the horseback that the yeah. train, train, okay. So you were able to talk to both yeah, parts. It's, it's the ladies that were there when the train people pulled up. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't know that I talked to each other. So he told me that supposedly the woman still has the pieces. I've asked to see them and everything, but they get scared. And for whatever reason, I haven't seen it, hmm. but he told me the the pieces are like a greenish, like a light green color. And he says that uh, they're a green color with dark black and like light yellow colored spots on it is what he says. Hmm. And he says that his mom has a few pieces of it put away somewhere. So, Going back to the crash site, I told you the National Guard unit is holding the site while the Hill Air Force Base once again drives from the north down to the site. Well, the two guys that were leading this National Guard unit went inside of this craft while they're waiting for this military group to get from Hill Air Force Base. This is one of the most interesting craziest things i've ever heard as far as not crazy in their psycho but crazy as like really interesting yeah they Where actually the, they actually went and entered the, yes. the object that was laying on the ground broken open they went and looked inside even though they yes. w- witnessed what appeared to be strange bodies laying around yeah i'll, I'll get to the debris field in just a second oh but wow. the, at least three to four people went inside the craft and while this while the people are coming from hill air force base um they said that about 30% of the craft was destroyed and obliterated when it hit the ground and was flipping around. Hmm. So uh, they just walked in through the portion of the craft that was blown open. And he says that it looked as if you were standing on the desert floor. And his exact words, this is the guy that was leading the group. Um, he says that it looked like you were standing on the desert floor. And of course the object was flipped upside down. So they were technically standing on the roof and the floor would be like up above their head. He says, it looked like you're standing on the desert floor. If you looked around, there was, it looked like there was no walls around you. He said the only place that looked like you were inside somewhere was the hole that they had walked in from, because you could see like the light from outside coming in. He says it looked, like modern day night vision. He said it was like that green and black color, like when you see modern day night vision. Hmm. And uh, he says that it looked like that, but it had yellow spots mixed in with this green and black night vision look. So almost like when they went inside the craft, it it wasn't like you were in an object that had barriers or walls. It was translucent. Exactly. In some sort of like a... a, a 
you could see through the walls like they yeah, were. Yeah, he said you could see the people standing outside the craft when they were inside. You could see them standing out there. And you but could it was see the distor- railroad tracks and everything. Distorted like a night vision with kind of a green. Yeah, it's like the green and black night vision. Which makes you wonder if that was because it was damaged or if, uh, and it made it look that way, or if yeah. it actually had that appearance because the beings inside the craft uh, were, when you're inside of the object, it's like you're really just flying free yeah. with full 360 radial awareness around you without having to look at screens or through a porthole or window to see outside. They're just able to see the projected outer reality that's yeah, that's strange. not even the best part of the story the best part of the story is while they're in this craft they thought they were in there for like 20 or 30 minutes and i guess when they stepped outside they were actually in there for about two hours oh wow so for some reason it seemed like i don't know if time slowed down in there or time stopped but for some reason they swore up and down that they weren't in there that long but everyone outside says they were in there for hours that's really interesting. And, uh, you, you, that might even explain when you wonder like dimensional reality like that, the craft that you saw as a young child that was like egg shaped that didn't appear to yeah. even be big enough to have creatures inside. If they're warping space time or, or, or something like that existing mm-hmm. in a, in a pocket of dimensional reality where that scale wouldn't matter. It would almost be like the phone booth. Oh, geez. What is that? show doctor who like yeah. it it's a looks like a phone booth but when you open the door and step inside you're actually inside an entire ship and inside an entire yeah. room because the dimensional reality is uh, shifted inside sort of an energy field so that's they don't know exactly what time this ufo crashed um i know the people on the train arrived at almost noon on the dot because they're on a time schedule so the conductor said on the conductor log, it was noon when they were passing that specific point. Mm. So uh, it must have crashed uh, sometime earlier that morning. So it was only a few hours before. Um, when the individuals arrived from Hill Air Force Base in the convoy, they ended up dismissing the National Guard and they went back to wherever they came from. But I guess that they're, the guard unit is actually... The official building is in Ely, but they didn't go back to the bu- to the building in Ely. All of the guardsmen, all the guardsmen, and all of the people off of that were brought off the train were brought to the Ely Police Department, and they were questioned and debriefed there before they were all allowed to go home. Mm. But they didn't keep them overnight; they just talked to them, which is kind of weird. It's kind of like they would quickly talk to them. It wasn't really like an like a uh, like an interrogation, like what they did to Mac Brazel. At Roswell, it was like a, a weeks or months they were in terror. It wasn't like that kind of deal. Um, when the guardsmen, when well, not the guard, when the guys from Hill Air Force Base got there, the wrecking crane was already on site and it was waiting for them to get there. Because the wrecking crane had to pick this object up and put it on the back of a flatbed truck. So this object was a lot bigger. It was a lot bigger than the one from the 1950s. But in the actual pictures that you're looking at right now, there's a picture of the staging area. We found the area that where the military was staging their operations because it's really narrow driving up there. If you were going to be driving in a convoy, it should be the second row towards the top. Like here? Yeah, oh, that's okay. the area the military used to uh, stage their operations. They had tents and trucks and things sitting there because you that road was so narrow up ahead, you can only drive one car at a time up that road. Right. So... Um, the people that weren't driving up the road, they would have parked there and they would have had like their tents and everything up there. 
And you can again, you can see that little berm. The that's the mining company dumped their sand up there again. Interesting. Yeah. So they were saying, I know of at least five alien bodies that were at the crash site. They were saying that there was, I know there was one that they said had an arm torn off. There was one that was cut in half. There was two that looked like they were burned badly, but they were intact. Hmm. Um, there was one that was found fairly far away from the other ones as if it had been alive and died later on. But I guess there was at least five of them. And I remembered uh, one of the guys was telling me that when they pulled up that this, some of the guys were trembling because they were so scared of seeing these creatures. They had no idea what they were. Um, some of them had been aware of the Roswell story, but I give, I, this is the 1960s. So occasionally you'd hear bits and pieces of that. But I guess they were saying some guys were trembling, some guys were shaking, uh, other guys were afraid to touch them because they were thinking that they would get sick or they, which is a legitimate thing yeah. to be afraid of. And I guess they really wasn't any kind of protocol. They just kind of gave them some gloves and some body bags and said, have <laughs> at it, really. There wasn't really like, as far as I heard, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, preparation involved. Um, How did, did they describe what these uh, creatures tended to look like did they, yeah, it was they typical typical grays they said it was they were small and they were like a tannish looking color with the big eyes hmm. they were saying they weren't wearing any kind of clothes though that i heard they said that it looked like they were naked or whatever but they didn't see any kind of like genitalia if they're like a man or a woman or but they did say that there was at least five of them that i know of but this object unlike the other object from the 50s this one crashed fairly close to a place called Yellen Field. Yellen Field was a training base used for World War II in that area to train bombing crews. And it was also used to train anti-aircraft crews during World War II. And so the convoy basically brought it from the crash site to Yellen Field, and then the, the waiting military airplanes just flew it to Hill Air Force Base. Mm. And then for some reason, I don't know why, it went from Hill Air Force Base to Douglas Air Force Base. Mm. Probably because that's what they'd done before, and so they just followed the routine. Well, rather than, well, the first one was brought to Wright Patterson. This one, oh was right, Douglas. right. I don't, I don't know why exactly, but Interesting. Uh, I, I, uh, I talked to a lot more people that flew the planes and things for the first crash. The second one, I've only talked to a handful of people that dealt with the bodies once they were put on the backs of the trucks. But the crash site at the 1960s crash looks like it's basically untouched nowadays from back then. I, I, I still think if you went out there with a good metal detector, you'll probably find something out there because, like I said, the telegraph poles are torn down. They're literally laying on the ground where they fell. The train tracks, uh, they've been repaired, but when you're sitting there up close, you can see where the repairs were done. It looks like it wasn't – but and again, that, that mountain or that hill was destroyed, and it looks like they didn't do a very – they didn't even – actually, they didn't even repair the hill at all. Well, we should go out there. I have a really, really good professional metal detector, and and that would be, and we could take some big, uh, like uh, magnet systems and roll them across the ground and see what kind of metal we pick well, up. And if it was flipping end over end, and when it hit that small little hill, I think, in my opinion, pieces of little went flying far past that hill. And definitely. because of all the sagebrush and things in the area, like right, look at that picture. There's no way they would have got all the pieces of it. It would be stuck in the bushes. And if it was going as fast as as fast as it sounds like it was going, it would have went really far. 
Yeah. I mean, even when you think about like when you drop your car keys and stuff, even in your bedroom, you, you're like, how did it get clear under the bed and back yeah. under the dresser? And when these things are coming in at a high rate of speed and exploding and flipping end over end, there could be anything laying out there within quarter mile radius around that whole area that flew off, especially if you could kind of line out the path of where it well, came in and hit. I did actually, if you, the thing is you look at the farmer's field, you look at the tracks and all that. Um, when you're there in person, the whole area is surrounded by tall mountains. Right. Like Ely is basically at the built up against the side of a mountain. And as you go out, it turns into kind of like flatlands, like we're seeing right here. One of the only areas that has a what they call a saddle, which is a low point in the mountain, lines up perfectly with this crash site. So mm. if you were in an aircraft and you were coming in for an emergency landing, you could kind of see it off, off there. If you're coming in for an emergency landing, you would have to go through that saddle. Otherwise, you would run into the mountain. So I'm pretty sure it went through that saddle. Then it hits the farmer's field and then kept going. Trying to make a landing and then they hit the hit the rail, the berm and the railroad tracks and came in yes. out of control. Yeah. So um, something I forgot to mention. Uh, this happened in the summer of 1964. So... There was no snow on the ground or anything. Okay. That's really interesting. So you were actually, did you get to see any of this debris or did you have you? Uh... Um, the debris from the first one, I've seen like the, the slag that was on the ground. The second one, I haven't seen it, but I've heard three or four people say that they've seen it and they described it to me. And I know at least one person still has some somewhere out there. Hmm. But I think they don't want to tell me because they're afraid that it's going to get out and they're going to get it taken away from them or something. Yeah, they don't want their name mentioned and people come looking for it and, and harassing yeah. them and things like that and let it be what it is. Yeah, if that you makes bring a Geiger counter out to the crash site of the 1964 incident, um, you do get high radiation levels when you get to where that hill is, that destroyed hill. Hmm. But you don't get it towards the railroad tracks and you don't get it down where that indentation. But where the craft was actually sitting on the ground it goes up, I believe, 17 ticks or 17 points, whatever you want to call it. Even still now, huh? when you go yeah. out there, it has a weird anomalous radiation reading to the area. Yes, so it's like, because uh, the, the Geiger counter that I have, it's not like a super expensive one or anything. I think it was like 150 or something. So it's like kind of like a middle ground one. It's, okay. uh, what do they call it, milligoss, I believe. Or I just call it ticks because I don't know the exact measurement on there, but it goes up 17 points when you go from one area to the other. Yeah, this is fascinating, Jeremy. You, you've uh, been doing these crash investigations and landing investigations. Is there anything else that you want to lead into with that before we get onto the Sand Yeti and how this may tie in with that and the phenomenon that's going on at Skinwalker Ranch and how this might all be connected in some strange yes, way with, one, the, with the Bigfoot? Yeah, one story that'll, that I could say really quick. Um, when you talk to people about the UFOs in Ely, they usually talk about a UFO landing that took place in the, night, the late 70s to early 80s. I don't have the precise date, but I've talked to people, a bunch of people that have seen this. Um, at the same copper mine that that object crashed in in the 1950s is where this occurred. This um, is, the, is this the copper mine here? Yeah, that's the outside of it, like, because that's what that's the Keystone Dump, actually, the one I was telling you where the object was on the other side of it. Oh, okay. So, 
the the miners were mining in the mine, and I guess they were saying it was during the night shift once again, in the mid seventies to early eighties, and they were saying that the power shut out in the mine, and I guess they were saying the backup generators and everything weren't coming back on, or if they would come back on, they would fail pretty quickly. So the power shut off about 10, 15 minutes. And then he said it turned back on and they kept working. And then about 15 minutes later, the power shut off again. And again, the power kept shutting off several times. And eventually it got to the point to where the boss, the foreman, I call him, the foreman says, you know, you guys can start going home. The power is being very reliable right now. Um, if you want to go home, you could go home. So people started leaving. Well, the power shut off again. And this time when it came back on, the boss was more forceful saying, okay, well now you, everyone needs to get out of here. And, you know, some people left, other guys sat around talking just after work, talking to their friends. Uh, some people were taking their time, putting their tools away and everything. And after the power kept coming off, the boss was getting more and more angry. And it got to the point to where the boss started yelling at these people, like, like raising his voice saying, you guys need to get out of here. So as the people, the final, uh, final 20, 50 people started leaving the mine, they saw what, what they said was a glowing metallic object hmm. that came over the hill and landed in the mine where they were all just at. It didn't crash in the mine. It landed in the mine. Hmm. And this is what I think is very interesting. They said not even about five, ten minutes later, they saw three or four military helicopters come over the hill and landed in the mine where the object just was at, meaning that they were tracking it or it was something that was man-made or controlled by us. I think it was personally a government-made UFO of some kind, like a government craft. Hmm. But they said about a week later, this, the object was seen being carried off by a twin-bladed helicopter to the south. And they it was this, this was in the middle of the daytime. They, they brought it right over the downtown Ely, like they're not even trying to hide it. But they brought it right over the city and went south. And to the south is where Area 51 is, of course. Right. And uh, I guess they said the mine was closed for two weeks. And the military was there doing testing and thing occasionally for a few months after that. So, so this thing came and landed in the mine and then stayed put. And they came and basically took over the mine for two weeks and transported the thing out yes. with a helicopter by hitching onto it yeah they said it was like a, flying it off yeah it was like a chinook helicopter with like one or two escort helicopters and they flew uh to the south is what the guys were saying um the witnesses for that they were interrogated the ones that saw it that night leaving the mine i guess the when they were driving back into town there must have been police or something that somehow got their names i'm not exactly sure how they got their names but i do know that uh, the five or six of the people that I talked to that were there that night said that people did come to their house. Hmm. So um, that's the majority of the really exciting cases from Ely, besides getting into like the lights chasing the cars and things. I know Andrew wanted me to tell you uh, the story about us with the light close to town. Yes. Let's hear okay, that so this, part this, of the story. I'll do this really quickly. So there's a famous story about, lights that chase cars and things and Ely's like I said it's very remote and there's like a lot of hunters and things in the area so there's a town called Lund L-U-N-D 
And over by Lund, there's a famous story about two hunters that were out there hunting. And I guess they were saying on the other side of the valley, they could see a light at very low to the ground traveling at like treetop level. And it was uh, silent and it was shining little lights on the ground and everything. Well, uh, I guess one of the guys said that uh, his buddy actually shined trying to think of what the, a spotlight or a, a high-powered flashlight of some kind. They shined it at the object. And he said that he blinked. And when he opened his eyes, the object went from the, it was from, it went from the other side of the valley to like right up in their face. Just on the time that it took him to blink, it was like right there in front of him. Mm. And he says that it scared him so bad, they jumped in the truck, left their camp and everything, left their guns even sitting out. Then they, were, they drove back to Ely going at like max speed. He says they don't know how they didn't crash the car. And uh, I guess they made it back to Ely, and the object flew away right when they got to the edge of town. And they waited in the police station parking lot all night long. They were so afraid. And I guess um, that's like a famous story in the area. And that happened not even five years ago. Hmm. I remember I was on KDSS radio out there, and one of the guys called in and told his story like right after it happened. And then I guess the guy's been on a couple of different websites and things since then. Well, we decided to go to the other side of the mountain, which is Baker, Nevada. Right. Uh, me, my brother, and our friend Nick. And we saw lights that I would say were on the other side of the valley that were traveling at treetop level, kind of like what the other guy was saying. But it was too far away to really see like what it was. Well, um. My friend Nick, of course, we had a high-powered spotlight. I, I was turned the other direction. I turned around. He's shining this spotlight at the object on the other side of the valley, just like what happened to the hunters. Um, the light ended up not coming towards us or anything, but uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Andrew likes that story. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I just told him, I'm like, don't do that. We heard what happened. We were just talking about that story like earlier that night, and then I turn around, and then my brother and my friend Nick are doing the same exact thing. So just so everybody's aware, Baker, Nevada's right over over here on screen. Uh, and then you've got Ely right here next to Ruth. And Area 51 is all down in this whole area all over the place. Uh, I can probably Dugway's type. very close to Ely to the east, too. Yes. So from there, if we go to Area 51, you can see there it is. <laughs> yeah, and see, I've parked on this mm -hmm. road here and driven up and down. This is where the uh, this is where the famous black mailbox is on screen. Basically, yeah, right there is the black mailbox, and this is the Groom Lake Road that goes right up over by Bald Mountain, where they have big radio towers and and stuff like that, into Area 51. And you go in here and just yeah. like you were you were talking and I showed this uh, on uh, my Instagram and my new TikTok account. But you scroll out here and there's all kinds of old, strange, that almost looks like Nazca line airfields, like dirt airways and different yeah. things like that. Uh, you've got Indian Springs and, and strange stuff. This is where they claim uh, Papoose Lake. This is where... Uh, uh, they talk about a lot of the time, like underground, underneath this mountain here is supposedly installations where they 
if they're going to fly test aircraft or or reverse engineered craft that they actually fly them over Papoose Lake yeah. and, and and through this saddle of the mountains here and sometimes uh up and over into this valley in this region oh it looks like I lost you there but uh I'm going to keep going and showing this region of area 51 and try and join us back here when you get a second there Jeremy um but uh they come out of Papoose Lake right here fly through this saddle of the of the mountains and sometimes they go up higher in altitude so that if you're parked in this region here or up in the mountains here you can get a view all the way down this entire valley i'll bring you right back here jeremy yeah sorry i was trying to look at the chat and it kicked me out so i don't want to touch that anymore <laughs> no problem yeah so you have this uh they'll fly up through this saddle here and sometimes they slip over into this area or they even come down uh, south through this area and then back up and land on Area 51. We've been parked right here on the road before and watched them take off stealth bombers and stealth fighters, and they, they'll fly just like a big loop like this and then turn around, and they'll fly almost right over you right here and then land. And if you go up north to Ruth, uh, let's see, or Rachel, actually, the road comes up here. If you park up in here in the in this area, this is where the little alien is. Uh, you can go down these little dirt roads and sit right here, and you can hear them uh, breaking the sound barrier and flying overhead, even though you don't see anything. It's just constant, <laughs> like, explosions in the sky. And yeah. uh, we've seen, uh, we parked right here on the road and saw a, a strange ball of light basically fly over Bald Mountain and over the mountains from west to east towards Crystal Springs uh, mm -hmm. that was blinking on and off like a large strobe light, but ir irregularly, sometimes really bright, like a welding light where you can't even look at it, and then sometimes mm -hmm. really dim, uh, but lots of weird stuff flying around. So you guys were uh, up by, and yeah, and if you go across this whole area all the way up here, you get up to the salt flats, and there's this here's Salt Lake City over here, Mm -hmm. and uh, Ely, Nevada, Ruth, and Baker. And you've got uh, a bunch of other military installations and Air Force installations, basically from Area 51, like we've been talking about, all the way up through this whole area of Nevada and probably underground, uh, a lot of different strange stuff. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, we covered the uh, <laughs> a lot of the geology, a lot of the area. So, so wait, so you went up there and you guys saw a ball of light similar to that? Did it chase you? We or? saw a ball of light. It was flying on the other side of the valley, though. And then I remembered we were watching it. Um, I thought that it, uh, I thought whatever it was, was like going away from us. And I remembered I was going back to the car to go get some gloves because it was cold out. And I turn around. And there's like so they're shining our spotlight at the object, like trying to like make the thing chase us, like after those other guys. That's crazy. So how close did it get to you? Were you able to film it or anything? Um, my brother filmed it. It's it's uh, on our YouTube channel, I believe, but it but it looks like it's way further away than it really was on there, though. Gotcha. And the video yeah. I think is really long that he put on there. I don't think he had cut it down. I think he kept like the full length video. But yeah, it looks like it's further away than it really was, like on the video. I'm yeah, the cameras don't really do it justice for what you see. It's just kind of like when you try to take a picture of the moon. You know, you're looking at it, and you're like, wow, the full moon. And then you try to zoom in on it. It just doesn't even look yeah. like what you're witnessing personally. So, yeah, how does I tried to, um, 
the main things are as far as my ufo research goes i try not to focus on like um like you're just like when m normal people see like little dots in the sky i don't really like that so much i like things that are closer to the ground or like ufo crashes that kind of thing yeah that's for sure because uh when it gets onto the ground that's when it starts to get strange yeah, like and that thing at treetop level like that kind of stuff i really find interesting like people seeing little dots in the sky not so much but uh i know um what do you call it i tr like if you go on my blog a lot of the things that i write about as far as ufos go they're usually either crash cases or um men in black or stuff like that so did they, on, on, on the ground research of this UFO stuff, did that kind of lead into your investigations of the, of the sand Yeti is what you guys call it. Or it's like basically the Bigfoot of the desert or like a hominid type of creature. Well, with the sand Yeti actually there. goes back to uh, Mount Potosi again, the Boy Scout camp oh, goes okay. back to back then. Um, over on the radio, the 107.5 radio down here in Vegas one day, I remember uh, I was in college and they actually talked about um, there was a family that was over by Lake Mead somewhere like boating. And they said that they saw this creature that they, they said it was like a, basically what you think like a description of a Bigfoot. And they said that it was basically walking along the river, trying to get away from them. Like they had startled it. And then there were several people that started calling into this radio show reporting sightings down by Lake Mojave and the Colorado River, saying that they had seen the creature down there at some point in the early 2000s. Well, we, on our website, we put out a thing saying if anyone's seen the Sand Yeti to go uh, let us know about it. And I called into the radio show and I was actually on the air and I was talking about this Sand Yeti thing. Because at that point in time, we really didn't know nothing about it. Well, we started getting calls from Blue Diamond, Nevada. People were saying that the creature was coming up there and that it was, one lady said it was like eating her plants. Another lady said that she has had food sitting out for a barbecue and it grabbed her food and took off. Other people were saying it was looking in their windows. Uh, this is all in Blue Diamond. Blue Diamond, Nevada is close to Mount Potosi. It's in that, it's in that general area where it turns from desert-like to uh, what looks like a pocket of forest. Yeah. And um, so you've got so, Las Vegas and Henderson right here. And Blue Diamond is literally that close. Yeah. Blue Diamond's over in Red Rock Canyon. Gotcha. And is, uh, so this is a large mountain range, though, all the way up yeah. through here. Uh, and there's Indian Springs and Area 51 right here. So you've got this whole weird anomalous region. So you've had reports of the Sand Yeti coming in. Uh, maybe following Bonnie Springs down into Blue Diamond well, in this area. The Sand Yeti, I know lots of people in the early 2000s reported it over by Lake Mead, like on uh, the Colorado River. Lots of people reported it over in that mountain range over by Blue Diamond. Um, but a lot of the stories come actually from the Mount Charleston, the backside of Mount Charleston, and a lot of them come from the Caliente Ely area. I don't mm. think that it lives in the desert. Like I do think that it travels through the desert to get from maybe from like a wooded area to wooded area, but I don't think it spends a lot of time in like the sagebrush and all that. Uh, Cause most of the sightings you hear are actually in the wooded areas. And of course the wooded areas in Northern Arizona and over in uh, most of Nevada, they're not like Northern California. They're, they're wooded, but they're not like that thick of, 
trees like you would see up there. Um, Interesting. The earliest report I know comes from 1982 or 1984. And there was a guy that worked over at the Nevada test site. And he was over by Mercury, Nevada. And he says that he was on his way to work driving from the uh, US 95. He got off the freeway. And he said that he saw what he considered a Bigfoot cross the road and was walking from mountain to mountain, I guess. Like it was down in, like I said, it was traveling from one mountain to the other. And uh, he actually reported it to a newspaper. And that's the uh, original sighting that I know of as far as the Sand Yeti goes. Um, there are stories that go back to the 1800s going from the far northeastern Nevada and over by Lake Tahoe. But um, I wouldn't consider that the Sand Yeti. I would just consider that like a Bigfoot. But we call it the Sand Yeti because um, that radio show, they're the ones that actually called it the Sand Yeti for the first time and gave it that name. And then we kind of just we kind of just carried on the name or carried on the research. But as far as I know, the only ones that are investigating this are a couple people in Southern California in the desert areas. There's a there's a couple names for what they call that. But as far as Nevada goes, I think we're like the only ones. Unless you want to count like Lake Tahoe and um, that general area, and you have it right there, you're saying from Mercury uh, down through all of these mountain ranges, you've got uh, Blue Diamond area right here, like it's moving up through these mountain yeah. ranges and areas. And this is Indian Springs mm-hmm. that I was talking about earlier. That I mean, you can't go into this area. You can't drive through here. This is mm-hmm. all becomes immediately. Uh, military installations depart uh, doe department of they control energy um, land they control almost all of the drones for like the middle east and actually the military for our military all over the world is run from there it's from what i hear yeah and this this uh valley up here supposedly when you drive up uh over the mountains here up into this uh, dry lake bed was where i was mentioning earlier where the encounters with the tall white beings uh the family of extraterrestrial type beings uh supposedly uh were interacting with the weather balloon operators and there's documentaries out uh where they've tried to come out and tell those stories and so right over in the mountain range over here you have the uh in mercury you have the siding with the sand yeti and all up north through this region and then you go across i-15 up over here from the salt flats across from salt lake you get into the UN yeah, once you get by like the ely caliente pioche area it goes into woods all over again then you have uh up here by vernal utah you get into the uintah basin and, and skinwalker ranch and all of that so it's all this really strange anomalous area and then even over uh to the grand canyon area uh to the east out through the desert, you've got all these uh, re- ancient legends and reports of different types of beings or ant people that mm-hmm. came up out of the ground and extraterrestrial contact and stuff. So it's uh, yeah, this is a really good question uh, right here. Do you think that that these are like window sites or these types of the geology of the area creates uh, sort of like, a, well, I guess with the, a good question way to put this is, do you think that it's like, a dimensional type being or do you think the sand yeti is a physical like hominid that is a relic 
hominid that's living in these regions and able to hide itself really well? Or are these locations more like Skinwalker Ranch, like window sites that are uh, prone to be anomalous because of the way the geology of the region or something special about uh, the history of the region opens up the opportunity for interdimensional type beings and creatures to come and manifest into our reality. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think it's more of just like a regular creature that's like living and breathing and everything. But um, one of the guys that does the San Yeti stuff with me, he thinks that they're interdimensional beings and he thinks that they're brought either by a, almost like a ghostly type, um, a ghostly type of entity. Um, something I would like to bring forward, which supports my theory. We're doing a documentary right now on the San Yeti. We've already filmed all the footage. We're just editing it right now. Cool. Um, editing is kind of going slow going right now because we've been really busy with a bunch of birthdays and things in our family. So we're hoping to get it out this summer. We're going to make it free on YouTube. And then we're going to make like a part two that will probably make charge like a buck or two or something. But anyways, um, on this part one, we interviewed a bunch of witnesses to the San Yeti. We go out and we investigate it. And of course, we did catch quite a bit of evidence. This was in April of last year. We, me, my brother and our friend, we were up in all around Nevada. And we spent a month going and looking for the San Yeti. One of the craziest things that we've seen, um, we were up in Mount Charleston of all places, which when people think of the San Yeti, you don't think of Mount Charleston. You think it's too close to Vegas. I didn't think, I personally didn't think it could really live in Mount Charleston, but turns out that I was wrong. So hmm. we went up to Mount, we went up to Mount Charleston and on this particular night, it had been snowing really heavily for about three days before that. And there was snow. I clearly remember I couldn't park the car um, up to the hit up a specific hill because there was ice all over the road and the car wouldn't go up the hill. The car was slipping and everything. And it was about midnight or so we got to this location. And it's not the tourist part of Mount Charleston because there's like a tourist side and there's like a non-tourist side that it was the non-tourist side. So we're sitting there. Uh, our YouTube page has the preview for all of this, actually. Oh, okay. It should be like one of our top, one of the last couple of videos we uploaded on there. So anyway, so we're at this the side. It had been snowing recently. And uh, I rem clearly remember we hiked up this hill. It's kind of like you go up this hill, you go walk for a while, and then it goes down into like a deep valley. And at the bottom of this valley is like a small lake or like a small reservoir. And there's no houses anywhere nearby. So um, we're down in this valley. The snow was literally like up to past our knees, like between your knee and your waist. So this was almost like uh, a really bad idea going down there to begin with. And when we got down to the bottom of this, I guess you would call it a, uh, a valley. When we got to the bottom of this valley, there was this lake down there. Well, when we got to the bottom, we saw these giant, three toed footprints and it looked like they were in the middle of like, you know, when snow turns to ice. Yeah. It was like that. It was like an icy type snow area. There was like three or four footprints. We got pictures of it. We tried to cast it, but the cast wasn't working right because of the ice. Um, we got this on the documentary. So after we spent some time down there, 
we start walking back up towards where the car was parked. And on our way back up, at one point, we stopped to have a conversation and we heard what sounded like a dragging sound up ahead on the trail, like, a, like a, something was dragging. And I remembered we thought this was odd and we caught that on video. And we get up to the top where this dragging sound was and there was nothing there. So <clears throat> we continue walking to like a wide open area. And this wide open area, it's not really a parking lot. We use it as a parking lot sometimes, but it's not really a parking lot, I guess. This snow plow is up there for that general area, but there's no town really around there. We're up there and we turn on our thermal camera. And what was weird was we caught something on thermal walking away from us. Hmm. And it was probably not even a half a mile away, a fourth of a mile. It was really close, whatever it was. And at this point, it was pouring snow down. Like you couldn't, you couldn't hardly see. It was snowing so bad. And like I said, there was ice all over. We didn't, we must have only seen or heard one or two cars the whole night we were out there. So I have no explanation for what this was. It would look like a person, but it was in the middle of a snowstorm. I don't know why there'd be a, a lone person out there by themselves. There was no cars anywhere in sight when we were driving up there. And when we left, there's no cars parked on the side of the road anywhere. Um, whoever this was, like I said, in the middle of the night, in the middle of a snowstorm, freezing out, snow up to your knees. I'm like, I have no idea. We have no explanation. But we caught all this on video. And this is all going to be on our documentary. So it'll be the first Bigfoot documentary that we actually made. So it'll be pretty good, pretty exciting. So I'm, I'm over here on your YouTube channel right now, the Big Bigfoot's Pad Paranormal uh, mm -hmm. site. Um, is this the documentary preview here? Yep, you could, yep, it should be that one. It should be like a minute and a half. Or... I'm not sure if we'll be able to hear it or not. Can you hear that? Uh, I don't hear anything on my side. I can hear it in my headphones, but you guys might not. If you be able go to, to the very screen. end, you could see the uh, the thermal footage. We show a little clip of it because we caught the thermal footage on two different cameras. But my brother shows the worst of the two cameras to try and give like a. That's my brother doing something. It's like the very end of the trailer. Interesting. It's right there. He zooms into it, but this you can see I'm filming here. the I'm filming the the uh, the thing on the thermal camera that's in my hand, and he's okay. filming me. He doesn't. We don't show the footage that was on the device. We're trying to kind of entice people to watch the documentary, so we don't show like the good version of it right. until you watch the documentary. But uh, right there, that's when we caught the really good thermal footage. That's fascinating. So I've actually had a, a Bigfoot encounter myself, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it was very, very similar in the sense that it was like uh, highly paranormal in mm -hmm. nature. I, I looked at it at the time just as a straight up Bigfoot thing because I was there to film a Bigfoot documentary kind of behind the scenes. But when I look back on it, it was more yeah. like... Uh, more like a, a poltergeist encounter up in the mountains that I I didn't actually see the thing, but it was mm -hmm. like you hear like a Mothman encounter or a Skinwalker Ranch type encounter. Um, but your your yeah. take on this is this, and this is a three-toed creature, which is very strange as well. Yeah. Like normally you get the large 
human footprint. But in some of these cases, like down in the swamp regions or the desert regions, mm-hmm. but I think the Yowie in Australia is supposed to have yeah, three that's toes as well. The only other place I know of three-toed footprints are like the Falk monster, the Honey Island swamp monster, and some of the Yowies have three toes. But when you picture that, that doesn't sound like something that could exist in real life when you think about it. I mean, yeah, I, I believe they do exist, but that doesn't sound like something that um, something anomalous to our dimension of reality, uh, possibly. Yeah. I used to be a real skeptic when it came to this idea of them being able to use like uh, uh, they call them, for lack of a better word, they open them, close portals or step in and out of our dimension. But when you study the actual quantum physics and the science behind the nature of our reality and you get into Mm -hmm. that you realize a lot of this stuff is actually possible and there could be a lot of different forms of life that exist sort of overlaid with ours that we would just perceive as some sort of a spirit realm or a poltergeist phenomenon or a skinwalker or something like that that when it needs to come through or migrate through our dimension it comes through uh you have these cases also of missing tracks you know where you'll follow the prints in the mm-hmm. snow or in the mud or the sand, and then suddenly they're just gone. And, well, and- what's weird is um, my friend that does this with us, he went up to a place called Frenchman Mountain, and it's outside of Vegas, and there's, like, not really any trees or anything. It's kind of the the, the – where he was at was kind of almost like a uh, like a desert region that doesn't really have any kind of plants or anything. And he started seeing these three-toed footprints – in the sand walking in like a specific direction i wasn't there like i said but he filmed them and got them on camera too and he says that he they they weren't going anywhere because i don't know why a bigfoot would be out there it looks like it couldn't live out there if it was like a living breathing creature because there's no trees there's no waters nowhere for it to really live and look how close to the city it is right there yeah, and, and that's you, have why, a, uh, you have Nellis Air Force Base right here. Yeah, we have like no explanation for what those footprints were, where they were going, but it looks really similar to the footprints that we found up in Mount Charleston. Very interesting. So you guys have a documentary and everything coming out. We're coming up on two hours right now, a good spot to maybe end it and leave a cliffhanger. So mm-hmm. when can we expect this the Sand Yeti documentary to drop on your YouTube channel? We're hoping to do the end of July is what we're shooting for End of July. Um, we started editing it, but then we got kind of sidetracked and haven't done it for like a month or two. So we're probably going to get started back up on it next weekend is what it sounds like. That's awesome. And Jeremy, I would love to just throw this out there and invite myself to come on <laughs> with you and on your crew. Yeah, you could go with us. They I don't, don't mind. Like- I know uh, Andrew actually asked to go with us and we said he could go with us too. That'd be awesome. Um, Uh, And we have uh, other people that are in the UFO Twitter community that are are really cool. Uh, Jeremy McGowan, he has a whole truck that's equipped with uh, sky scanning equipment in order to he can flip his equipment on and literally track Mm -hmm. any anomalous stuff flying around in the sky. Yeah, we could go out with metal detectors so that. Uh, crash site along the railroad tracks and everything and really look for evidence Yeah, and, and film all of it and help uh, promote your documentary coming out. Yeah, that'd be cool. Investigate the sand um, that'd be awesome. We're hoping to get back out for some reason. I don't know why a lot of the sand Yeti reports start coming in during like the fall. I don't know if it comes out more then or what the deal is, but for some reason they go in waves. It's like the fall and early like winter time is when we get the most reports coming in. Let me ask, is it around in August? Do you feel like it's in the middle or uh, of 
the month of August. That's when we found the accounts up in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. Yeah, actually, that is like August, September, where it starts getting where it's like the end of summer, the beginning of like where it starts cooling off. That's usually when we get. I don't know if that's because when the most people go out and, mm. th and that's when people see it or if the creature for some reason comes down to certain areas during that time of year. That's kind of right at the beginning of like hunting season for anybody that's up, maybe going to shoot coyotes or varmint or something like that or yeah. rat things or uh, deer or black bear, but people who are going up there a little bit ahead of hunting season, but also it, it begs the question as to whether or not they're kind of a migratory sort of creatures where yeah, when you're exactly. in those locations, they come through at that time or they come up from underground at that time if there's the cave systems, which is a whole nother conversation. Oh, yeah. Idea of the uh, the lava tube formations and underground cave systems that are all throughout this region. I mean, even the Navy has a Navy uh, shipyard uh, location that they own just at a, a lake in the middle of Nevada. And it makes you wonder. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's reports of them coming up with submarines like that they have tunnel systems for underwater activities that go all the way out into the ocean clear into Nevada. And it, oh yeah, I, reality is much stranger than I think most people want to admit or realize, uh, but mm -hmm. I'm totally fascinated about it. And Jeremy, this has been an amazing conversation. We've gone on for two hours here. We've talked about everything from uh, uh, UFO crash sites and landings with extraterrestrial or strange bodies on the ground with mm -hmm. multiple witnesses, debris being recovered and how that all ties in with the sand yeti. So Jeremy, tell everybody really quick, if they wanted to find out what you're doing and go uh, look you up and follow you on Twitter and your websites and YouTube and everywhere. Yeah, I'll well, put some links down below, but let everybody know where they can find you. To, yep, to there's two main that. ways that you could contact me. Uh, the first one is bigfootspad.com. That's uh, our paranormal group's name. It's uh, Bigfoot with then an S and pad.com yep right there bigfootspad.com um and if you're looking to submit some kind of a ufo story uh, and then you could contact me on my private website which is elyufocrash.com so right Self here on the, like if you've had some kind of an encounter or report you can go here to the contact form and reach out mm -hmm. to jeremy and his team they've also got an instagram over here the bfp team go check them out and uh yep. they've got uh their YouTube channel right here, Bigfoot Pad Paranormal. And the link should be all down in the description box down below. Jeremy, it was a great pleasure to talk to you. Hopefully I can get you back on the show and we can dig into oh, for this sure. and go out and capture some amazing evidence and I'll bring my mm -hmm. metal detecting equipment and everything. Oh yeah, uh, I'll let you know. Uh, I'll let you know when the documentaries have done or when it's about done. And then next time we head back up to Ely, I'll let you know. That sounds awesome. And everybody over in the chat, Thank you so much for uh, hanging out here uh, and coming and leaving your comments. This was really awesome. Everybody's saying they, that it's crazy, that they love the show. Uh, they would love to see the documentary and looking forward to it. And oh, yeah. Fantastic show. So we're going to look forward to that. Look forward to your documentary. And hopefully some of us can hook up with you and go out there and investigate some of this stuff with you and check out some of this uh, recovered debris and maybe find That's some good. of our, yeah. our own. So that would oh, be yeah, awesome. For sure. Thanks, man. And we'll see you guys all next time. All right. Thank you.